week's episode of The Knowing Heart. So the title of today's lecture is Two Holy Brothers Within Us. The subtitle is Understanding the Protocol of Life. Okay, let's get into the practical modern-day issue that we are going to learn in how to better our lives from this mystical teaching of the Rebbe. And the, the modern-day issue is it's not just about the what. Okay, so I'm going to share with you a little bit about myself. Being impulsive and antagonistic of authority, I could not enumerate for you how many times after purchasing something that came with assembly instructions, I decided that I will figure it out on my own. And not being stupid, I figured out what goes where. However, where I failed was in realizing that there is a specific order in what goes where first and what goes where second. And that if that order isn't adhered to, I will end up having to take everything apart and start over again. Oof, how many times that has happened to me. And for the culinary artist out there, oh dear God, how many times I had to endure a recipe gone bad for this same reason of not understanding that if I'm going to end up putting all these ingredients in together anyway, then why do these ingredients have to be whipped together separately and these ingredients mixed together separately, after which we pour all the ingredients together anyway? And there went my culinary experience. But I got better at that, really, thank God. Just want you to know. So too, steps that only seem to a, be a preparatory step to the next step cannot be skipped. I read this, I read this interesting medical report, really interesting, a long time ago, which explained how certain psychological issues that a specific person suffered as an adult was actually the outcome of him as a child going straight from sitting into walking without ever learning how to crawl. And that the healing therapy was actually to teach him as an adult how to crawl. Interesting. Hence, it is not only about what has to be done, but also in the how it has to be done. In which A, we can't skip steps, and B, the steps need to be done in their correct order. Now, this lecture is going to guide us into two different steps that we must work in our relationship with God and that there must be a specific order in which the steps are worked. Additionally, the order of the steps is reversed at times depending on what we're dealing with in our working our relationship with God. This lecture is based on a mimer, a mystical teaching of the Rebbe of Blessed and Saintly Memory on this Shabbat in 1970, where the Rebbe was exploring the unique wording of the verse. Now I'm going to quote to you the verse from our Torah portion. This is Aaron and Moses, first Aaron, then Moses, to whom the Lord said, take the children of Egypt out of this land of Egypt. Then the verse goes on to say, They are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They are Moses and Aaron. This time, first Moses and then Aaron. Why the change in the order of listing Aaron and Moses? Okay. So, let's start with some introductions. Oh, so, who did what? This question we just posed concerning the switch in the order in which the verse lists the brothers, Aaron and Moses, is even deeper than just seeing a switch in the order in the verse. Rather, the order seems to be the opposite of what it should have been where they listed it. If we are going to one time put Aaron before Moses and the other time Moses before Aaron, so then it should have been, 
when the verse speaks of take the children out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, the verse should have listed Moses first, not Aaron, as he was the one dealing with the Jewish people and the one who actually took them out of Egypt, which is why it is specifically and only Moses whom our sages call Moses is the first savior. Now, while concerning the second part of the verse, where it says they are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, the verse should have listed Aaron first, not Moses, as the verse states, And he, God, said to Moses, Is there not Aaron your brother the Levite? And he, Aaron, will speak for you, Moses. Hence, the specific order in each verse begs an explanation. It seems to be in reverse. Where Moses should have been first, Aaron is listed first. And where Aaron should have been listed first, Moses is listed first. So we really need to look into the specific order of Moses and Aaron being listed in this verse. Okay, another question. Why the singularity? The second question is one of grammar. So in Hebrew, the word who is the singular form of he or who is. While the word haim is the plural for, form of them, they are. Hence, when the verse lists two people, Moses and Aaron, it should have stated haim, plural. And yet the verse states who. Let me quote the verse. Who is Aaron and Moses, who Hebrew, meaning he, singular, is Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, they, here it says, Haim, plural, are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh. And then again, it goes back to the singular, who, in Hebrew, means he, is Moses and Aaron. Now, the question gets even stronger. As you paid attention, I quoted to you that at one point the verse does use the plural haim, they. Then why twice when it lists them does it use the word who, which is singular for he? The question gets even stronger. As we see that by listing Moses and Aaron, the verse is coming from the understanding that they are both not only different people, but different spiritual manifestations on their soul levels. And hence, Rashi, the famous French commentator of the 11th century, on the verse sees the specific switching of the orders in which Moses and Aaron are listed, to point out specifically that even though they are different, nevertheless, and I quote to you what Rashi says, in some places, scriptures place Aaron before Moses, and in the other places, it places Moses before Aaron to teach us that they were equal. Hence, the verse is specifically acknowledging that they are two different and is pointing out that nevertheless, they are equal. Hence, in acknowledging that they are two, then the verse should have definitely used the plural form of they, haim, not he, which in Hebrew is who. A practical matter. Next introduction. Every concept in the Torah is a lesson in our service to God on a personal and individual level to each and every one of us, especially concerning the Torahs relating to us concerning the exodus from Egypt. Being, why is that specifically an individual and direct lesson to both you and I today here? And the answer is because we are commanded, and I'm going to quote for you a piece of the teaching in the Talmud concerning the tractic of Passover. In each and every generation, a person must view himself as though he personally left Egypt. As it is stated, and the Talmud quotes the verse, and you shall tell your son on that day, saying, it is because of this which the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. So from that verse, the Talmud says that in the year 2021, at the Seder table, 
talking to our children, we should be experiencing that God took me out of Egypt. I was taken out of Egypt. And on the words in each and every generation, our, our sages explain and add on these words. And in each and every day, which is why so often we are mentioning in our prayers daily, in the morning, in the evening, when we say the Shema, we mention the Exodus. So too, on the words of that teaching, when I came forth out of Egypt, the sages explain and add on the words, when I came forth today out of Egypt. Hence, understanding these details about the order of the verse listing Moses and Aaron and the grammatical choice of singular who, which means he, is not just a scholarly exploration, but a practical one in how we have to affect today our personal exodus from our personal Egypt. Therefore, we will explore who Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, and what Egypt and Exodus are within our inner self in their spiritual level of our practical service to God. And now, let us begin the lecture. So, as always, I'm going to list to you which mystical topics we're going to talk about before we bring it back to a full circle and learn out, most importantly, the practical life-changing direction here. And now, for the list of the mystical concepts, number one, who is my inner Moses? Number two, who is my inner Aaron? Number three, taking the Jews out of our inner Egypt. Number four, breaking our inner Pharaoh. And then lastly, the unity of the singular grammar who, which is he singular. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. Okay, so who is my inner Moses? Moses is the concept of Torah. As the verse states in Prophets, the prophet Malachi says, I quote, Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant. So it's not saying, remember my Torah, God's thing. It's saying, remember the Torah of Moses. It's called in his name. Upon which our sages explain, I quote you from the Talmud, the Torah will be called by your Moses name. As it is stated, remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, to who I commanded at Korev laws and statutes for all of Israel. So there you go, God is telling us that Moses and Torah are synonymous. Hence, the Moses within us is the recipient of the Torah and is the service of Torah study. Now, we need to take a moment to understand something really interesting about Torah study. What is Torah study truly all about? In the society that we grow up, we perceive education as an end to a mean, and not an end in itself. We study so that we can be empowered to then use the, to the knowledge to accomplish that which we need to. For example, the study of law is not an end in itself, but rather it is a means to know how to live or and how to protect other and their rights. The same, for example, is with the study of medicine, in what this knowledge is on, in that this knowledge is only as valuable as it is used to heal or maintain health through application or through teaching. However, not so when it comes to Torah study. Let's understand this. There is the level of Torah study, which is also a means to an end. As our sages teach us, none of the other mitzvot can be equal to the study of Torah. Rather, the study of Torah can be equated to all the mitzvot because study leads to deed. So there you have it in Maimonides teaching us that the value, the, the, un, the unequated value 
of Torah study is specifically as a means to an end because it leads to deed, in which the entire focus of Torah study is to know that which must be done and that which must not be done. However, there is even a deeper dimension of Torah study, in which the Torah study in itself creates the ultimate purpose of life within ourselves and within the world. It is the end, not a means to an end. Okay, let us understand. Our ultimate purpose is pronounced in our declaration of faith. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hero Israel, God is our God. God is one. Now, the words God is one is not stating only that there is one God versus many gods. Rather, the declaration is that there exists nothing else but God. It's not about how many gods there are. It's about that there is only the existence of God. And that everything which exists is all part and parcel of the oneness of God. God is everything and everything is God. So there is no creator and creation in the barest naked truth of it all. Everything is God and God is everything. However, God created the world to experience itself as an existence of separation. Hence the challenge of study, concentration, and meditation into seeing beyond the paradigm of separation and to draw the oneness of God forth from ourselves and from the world around us. This is accomplished through the Moses and Aaron within us. The Moses within us to accomplish that God is one within ourselves and the world through Torah study. This is not just about studying and learning the godly truth about all existence. Let's get deeper here. Rather, God has placed himself within his Torah and hence through Torah study, digesting the Torah, making it the crevices and neural synaptic connections of our brain. We are literally digesting God and entering into a oneness with God of which our sages proclaim, and I quote, this is a wonderful union. This, this means a Torah study. This is a wonderful union like which there is none other and which has no parallel anywhere in the material world. In the material world, when two become one, there are two that become one. Whereby complete in this Torah study between us and God and God and us, whereby complete oneness and unity from every side and angle could be obtained. Once we truly study Torah, we experience the ultimate oneness with God. So too, through the study of Torah about any specific creature, place, thing, or experience, in defining the Torah rule, which is the will and wisdom of God, upon the specific creature, place, thing, or experience, simply speaking, what does Torah have to say about this? We hence reveal and draw the oneness of God into the world around us. Not just because we now understand God's will for this specific thing or experience, but even more so, being that the Torah serves as the blueprint to the world through which God created the world, hence it is through the Torah study that we literally connect, reveal, and draw the oneness of God within the specific thing or experience. Because the Torah is the will and wisdom of God, so it is directly a piece of God. And the Torah is the blueprint to every single creature and experience that exists. Hence, by studying the Torah, we reveal that the experience and the creature, the object, whatever it is, is truly in the oneness of God. However, Torah study is defined as a service called 
from above, meaning from God in heaven, to below, to us. Being that Torah study is the word of God, not our word, the word of God which descends from below, from above to below. God came down from heaven onto Mount Sinai and gave us his Torah. This is why Torah study is called, and I quote to you the verse in Psalms, my tongue will proclaim your word. So this is the service from above to below. So just to understand this for a moment, in connecting the two, below and above, above and below, there's two parts. There's bringing and drawing the above with into and within the below, and then there is the elevating of the below unto and within the above. Torah study, Moses, is all about from above to below. We below receive and study and engage with the Word of God from above. Now, who is my inner Aaron? Aaron is the service defined as from below to above. How do we know this? Let's look in the verse in Deuteronomy where God tells Moses to command Aaron to kindle the lamps. And I quote to you from the book of Numbers. Speak to Aaron and say to him, when you ascend, bring up, which meaning to kindle, but it's bring up the lamps. Now, the seven lamps of the menorah in the holy temple represent the seven different forms of service among the children of Israel. Now, Aaron, who is, and I quote to you from the Zohar, Shushvina the Matronisa, that's Aramaic, and what it means is the friend, counselor of the queen. So, what does that mean? It is the one that elevates the service of the queen, the bride, children of Israel, from below to above to the king, which is God, groom. Particularly, the Aaron within us is the service of prayer, which is the service of from below to above. As the Zohar explains that verse in Genesis of Jacob's dream, where it says, And behold, a ladder set up on the ground and its top reached to heavens, the Zohar says, this is the service of prayer. So simply speaking, when we pray, we focus on ourselves, our needs, and we talk with our words to God. So it's from below to above versus the Torah study where our job is to open ourselves up to receive below the words from above. So Moses is from above to below Torah study, while Aaron is from below to above prayer. Now, what does it mean taking the Jews out of our inner Egypt? Now, the exodus of Egypt is through Moses and Aaron, being that the exodus of Egypt is all about what is the focus of the entire experience. Why did God put us through that exile? Is as God tells Moses, in order that I will bring you to this mountain, where you will, they will, the Jewish people will receive the Torah. Now, what is the opening words of the Ten Commandments? Let me read it to you. I am the Havaya, the ineffable tetragrammaton name, Elokecha, the lower name, who took you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, according to Hasidus, the mystical secret of this verse is that it is commanding us to have the I. Remember the word, I, Havaya Elokecha, which took you out of Egypt. So I, which is the essence of God, drawn into the Havaya, which is the ineffable tetragrammaton, name of transcendence and miracles, should tangibly and consciously become Elokecha, which is the name of the divinity of nature, which means your strength and your life force. Now, what we're hearing here is that the entire exile of Egypt and its exodus was for us to be able to stand at Mount Sinai 
and receive, to be empowered to receive the commandment of God that in our life we need to be able to open ourselves up not just to the logical divinity of Mother Nature which we can wrap our scientific heads around, but we need to be open to ultimately connect with the I, essence of God, bringing it into the ineffable, infinite, circular, miraculous divinity of God, and making that become the soul of our nature, the way we practically live. And that's what it means which took us out of Egypt. Now, this is why we have explained before that the mission is to reveal the oneness of God, which is the I, I am Lord your God, that to it be our conscious strength and life force. And this is the inner purpose experience of who took you out of the land of Egypt. As we explained, this is accomplished through Moses, Torah study, and Aaron prayer. Now, I'm going to stop with my notes for a moment, and let's wrap our head around this, just practically. What does that mean, that it's not enough to just have Elokecha, the divinity of Mother Nature, but we need to also embrace and open ourselves up for the miraculous divinity of Havaya? And not only that, but to realize that both these names are only the light of God, and ultimately we need to live tangibly with the essence of God. What does that mean practically? So just for a moment, I want to share. What that means is, most often, without even meaning it, we have a dualism within us. We experience our secular side, everyone, I, I don't care, the, the, the rabbi with the longest white beard, we have our secular side, which defines itself in how we approach earning money, covering our bills, taking care of our physical health. And then we each and every one, even the most secular Jew, has our spiritual side. It may be a Yom Kippur moment. So we have within us the Elokecha, and then we have within us the I and the Havaya. And we kind of separate them. When we go to the doctor, we're engaging with Elokecha. When we're praying to God, we're engaging with the I and the Havaya. What we're learning here is that what God wants is when that we're in synagogue, even on Yom Kippur, don't get uber-spiritual. Make it practical. And when we're in our office, or when we're dealing with exercise, or whatever physical part of our life, don't make it uber-physical. Open it up to realize that this is but a vessel for spirituality. So I hope now that became clear what it means that Egypt has us locked into this separated paradigm while the exodus of Egypt through Moses, our Torah study, and through Aaron, our prayer, we need to get out of where we can enter into the oneness of God, where our Elokecha moments and our Havaya moments and even our I am God moments become all one fluid experience. Now we can appreciate the order of these two services in our Exodus process. Right? We spoke about the order which is switched. Moses, Aaron, Aaron, Moses. First, let us understand that each of these services, Torah study and prayer, are always compiled of each other. They're not truly ever separated. Concerning the, ser the service of Torah study, there is prayer, and especially so, the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is one of the books of scriptures. It belongs to Torah study. Yet you and I both know that Psalms is the ultimate cup of prayer. And, nevertheless, it is the founding heart of so uh, soul of prayers. And so too concerning the service of prayer. There is Torah study in our quoting verses in our prayers and in our introductory oral law of the Mishnayot and the Brightot, which we say before the prayers. So, in essence, both of them 
are never really absolutely separated. They're a compilation of each other. Nevertheless, when we are speaking about the work that we must accomplish here below, as in the exodus of Egypt, Torah study and prayer are two separate services. Moses is Moses, Aaron is Aaron, and they're two separate people. And first there needs to be the service of prayer. The primary service of from below to above, which is what Exodus is all about. Getting out of being imprisoned in the paradigm of the below. Hence, our sages teach us, and I quote to you from the Talmud, Abba bin Yamin, he was one of the sages, would say, All my life I have taken great pains with regard to two things. And the first thing that he lists is, that my prayer should be near my bed. And Rashi, once again, the French commentator of the 11th century, he explains this to mean, near my bed, I quote, all my days I was careful not to do a craft and not to engage in Torah study before I prayed, until I stood up from my bed, according to you again, when I stood from my bed until I read the Shema and prayed. So prayer in the process of the exodus of our Egypt paradigm, our inner Egypt paradigm, prayer comes first. And as the laws then proclaim that one should go from the synagogue prayer to the study hall, the Torah study. And as Hasidus defines, the greatness of Torah study performed after prayer over Torah study performed before prayer. So when we're talking about the exodus of Egypt, take the children of Israel out of their inner Egypt imprisonment, their paradigm imprisonment, prayer, Aaron, is listed first. After which we go to Moses' Torah study. And then because the Torah study is after the prayer, it has an unbelievable greater impact on us being able to leave our Egypt-constrained paradigm now of, of separation. Hence, concerning taking the Jews out of Egypt, the Torah lists Aaron, prayer, before Moses, Torah study. Now let's go to the next concept, breaking our inner Pharaoh. That was concerned taking the Jewish people out of Egypt, which is through the service from below to above. We're in Egypt below. We're getting out of Egypt to above. This is the service of prayer. First, and then Torah study. However, concerning breaking the arrogance of Pharaoh, here we need to place Moses, the service of from above to below, the service of Torah study first. Why? Specifically concerning the words of Torah, the verse states, and I quote to you from our prophet Jeremiah, Is not my words so like fire, says the Lord? Now, whenever a prophet uses something which seems to be imagery and poetry, the deep teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus want to show and explain and reveal how everything is precise. It's not just imagery and poetry. So let's go ahead and understand. Are the sages defined, why is Jeremiah saying that the words of Torah are fire? And they learn out of this an unbelievable legal statement. Just as fire does not become ritually impure, so too matters of Torah do not become ritually impure. Therefore, it is... Now, I, I wanted to share with you again, I didn't put this in my notes, but what was the legal aspect? If someone is impure, either because he had a seminal discharge or because he was at a funeral within the six feet of a dead body, whatever it may be, is he allowed to study the words of Torah? So the Talmud learns out of this imagery of Jeremiah, which compares the words of Torah to fire. And because fire is something which can never become impure, yeah, the candle can become impure, the wick can become impure, but the fire can never be impure. Hence, we learn out that even in a state of impurity, we are allowed to study 
and pronounce the words of Torah. Now, therefore, it is only through the words of Torah study that one can break the impurity of Pharaoh because the Torah itself will not become impure as it engages with Pharaoh, not so with other spiritual dimensions. Now, who is Pharaoh? The arrogance of Pharaoh is described in the book of Ezekiel, which we will be reading this Shabbat as the Haftorah. And I want to quote to you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great serpent that lies down in the midst of its rivers, who said, My river is my own, and I made myself. The total arrogance to really believe that you, we are an existence of our own with no God who creates us, who sustains us, who supplies us with the river. But to believe that the river is mine and I made myself, that is the ultimate arrogance of Pharaoh, who said to Moses, who is God, that I should listen to him. I do not know God. Now, the power of the impurity of Pharaoh was so powerful that even Moses was afraid to go to Pharaoh. See the Zohar, how the Zohar explains on the verse where God tells Moses, come to Pharaoh, the opening verse of next week's Torah portion. The Zohar explains that the reason God told this to Moses is because God saw that Moses was too scared and was not able to go to Pharaoh. So God tells Moses, come to Pharaoh, meaning come with me. Now, only after Moses received the power from above to below, the Torah study, God telling him to break the impurity of Pharaoh, only then can we engage with the service of from below to above, prayer, to refine and elevate the godly sparks that have fallen into the below. Again, I'm going to put my notes on a pause. Let's get practical here. Practically speaking, sometimes when we want to engage with an issue that we're dealing with, an unhealthy emotion, an unhealthy paradigm, which we, within which we are imprisoned at the moment. Now, if we're going to start from below, right, then we're going to be stuck in the below because that's the inner Egypt. So I can't get out of the below through the below. Hence, for example, when I'm dealing with depression, excuse me, I can't focus and understand and dissect the depression hoping to get my way out of the depression. Rather, the first step of this is to be able to completely set aside the below and enter into a bird's eye view, which is not my view because I am presently locked in the arrogance and imprisonment of my inner Pharaoh. So what I need to do is have a bird's eye view. But how can I have a bird's eye view when I'm experiencing being a worm in the ground? Hence, Torah study. Because Torah study is where I'm getting God's bird eye view of what's really going on. Once I have that empowerment, I can then go on to prayer, which is to focus on self and from there to go from below to above. Now, the last point that we're going to talk about is the unity of who, which again, I don't mean who, W-H-O, I mean Hebrew, who, he, vav, aleph, which in English means he, singular form. Now, we're going to get a little bit Kabbalistic here, and it's a beautiful experience. Now, even though we have just explained that Moses, Torah study, and Aaron, prayer, are two different services, nevertheless, the verse uses the singular form of who, he vav aleph, the singular term he, and not heim, the plural term of them. And this is because 
the mystical dimension of who is above and beyond both services as in, and is therefore able to unite them. Now let us understand this because I just read you, read for you a very clear but deep mystical teaching. So there is a level which is so above and beyond that both above and below are equal and coexist as one that they are truly united as one. Now let's see how that works. Prayer is the focus on the below in which a person focuses on his practical needs as Maimonides rules and he defines the commandment of prayer to be and I quote you from Maimonides petition for all his needs with requests and supplications. That's what prayer is all about. Hence the focus is on oneself and the feeling that he is lacking, only after which he can experience prayer, realizing that the only one I have to turn to in my time of needs and lacking is God, the provider of all. However, in Torah study, the focus is that the individual does not feel himself, but rather he is focused on and feels only the words of God. What is God saying here? as it comes from God from above. Hence, prayer and Torah study are two separate experiences of, I'm going to share with you another Kabbalistic concept, which is called Ratsui Vishuv. In English that means ebb upward, flow downward. That is the core, the, the core of Mother Nature, from its spiritual realm to its physical realm the constant fluid flow of up to get rejuvenated, down to give life, up to get rejuvenated. Just think of your blood and your heart, right? It gets oxygenated, goes back through the body, gets depleted, goes back. That's what ebb and flow is all about. And this dual experience of the ebb and flow exists in all the spiritual realms, even in the primordial light which over there the words of the Zohar is inclines, mati in, Hebrew, in Aramaic, that's the ebb, and doesn't incline, that's the flow, the loy mati, from the essence. So even in the highest primordial level where there exists only God and His light, the light is ebbing and flowing to and fro the essence. So there's always a dualship, two separate flows. Now, to be able to unite these two different and separate experiences as one, we need to connect to there where there is no ebb and flow or incline and don't incline. Now, what does that mean? Everything from the primordial infinite light has ebb and flow. Where is there no ebb and flow? where there doesn't need to be a rejuvenation and then the giving forth, the rejuvenation, the giving forth, the only place where that exists is in the essence of God. Only the essence has none of these movements, for these movements exist only in the light and not within the essence. Essence, by definition, simply is. There is nowhere to ebb to and there is nowhere to flow to. Because it is the essence. It is. Now, we can appreciate the word who. The Hebrew word who. Hevav Aleph, the singular term of he. That unites Moses, the Torah study flow, and Aaron, prayer, the ebb, as one. Why? In Kabbalah and Hasidus, it is discussed why in some verses and in some prayers we speak to God in second person with the word Atta, you. Our blessing says, Baruch Atta, blessed are you. We're talking to God in second person. God, you are here. I'm talking to you, you. While in others we speak to God in third person with the word who. Now, for example, we say, Hu Elokeinu, Hu Avinu. Ata Hu. Sometimes we say, You are He. What does that mean? The third person. Now, the second person 
mystically refers to a revealed presence to which we can point and say, you. This is the light, the infinite light. Light is revelation, it's present, I can see it and say, you. While the third person mystically refers to that, I'm sorry, which transcends beyond any defined presence of revelation and can only be referred to in the third person with the elusive word, he. This is not the light, this is the essence. So now we know that the word who, Kabbalistically, when we say the word Hebrew word who, which means he, we don't talk to God in second person direct, but we talk to God in third person. We're referring to that which is elusive, but that is the essence of God. Now, in the realm of emanations, who refers to the elusive, circular, encompassing light, infinite light of the supernal crown, while Atta, you, refers to the illuminating, linear, permeating light of the ten emanations. Now, in the realm of the ten emanations, each emanation is separate and different. There isn't a oneness. And, all through, and only through the revelation of the supernal crown do all the differences and separations become naught and all are united as one. Let me put my notes on pause. Let's get practical. So there is this parable in the teachings about the ministers of the king. Now their ministers are very powerful. And each one is different, so much so that sometimes they're opposing. One has the job of the budget, the other one has the job of the health system, and they're fighting over the budget. So there's opposites. One is being compassionate, one's job is to be more justice. So they don't really, really unite. However, what happens when all these ministers are standing in the throne room in front of the king which each and every one of them knows that by just the slightest, slightest rebellion, the slightest arrogance, they can literally lose their life. At that point, all these separate ministers are all equal. They're all not. They're all simple beings, subjects of the king in front of the king. Now you understand what we just read. The word who, which is the infinite circular supernal crown, that is the king. And all these emanations, all these separate and different emanations, they are the ministers. And they're all separate, and they're different, and they're even opposing to one another. However, when they're standing in the revelation of the king, in the presence of the who, they all become equally naught and united as one. Moses and Aaron are of the ten emanations. And hence, on their own, they are separate and different. Moses is Moses, not Aaron. Aaron is Aaron, not Moses. This is why the verse specifically introduces this with the word who, which we said is singular, essence, supernal crown. In order to melt away the differences between Moses and Aaron, so that they can unite Moses and Aaron as one. Practically speaking, what does this mean practically? When we dig deeper into our soul and find the humility and transparency to the will of God, the supernal crown of our soul, then this humility permeates and hence unites all our different forms of service to God, which then empowers our inner Moses to come to Pharaoh, after which there is the it came to pass when Pharaoh let the people go. So now when we realize within ourselves that it's not that we're wearing different hats and have to be different people in different moments of service of to God, in different dealings with our external arrogance. No, it's all one. It's all about being humble and transparent and one with God. Hence, yes, we start with Moses coming to Pharaoh, and that is from the above to below, the Torah study, 
to give me an outer box, out of the box experience and paradigm, the bird's eye view, to be able to break the arrogance in which I am stuck in a worm's eye view. And then from there we go to the next step, which is the prayer from below to above, which is ultimately having Pharaoh let us go. Now, this is about our microscopic inner exodus, which then collectively brings about the universal macroscopic exodus, and that it all be in the pleasantry of, I quote to you the verse from Psalms, He redeemed my soul with peace through the coming of Mashiach speedily in our days. Amen. So understand that this leaving Exodus, when we can connect with the Hu, Hevav Aleph, the supernal crown within us, the peace of God within us, then it isn't a war. It's peaceful. Yes, we have to deal with our Pharaoh. Yes, we have to deal with our worm's eye view of self, of God, and of all everyone around us. Yes, we have to break out of our prison of the I can't, I have to. But all of that is done with a unity, an inner congruency of Torah study and prayer, all about understanding that we want to be transparent to our inner self, the truest inner self, which is the who, which is the peace of God within us. So in closing, let me just wrap this up. In closing, let us embrace how when we begin our journey in our relationship with God, we must wear different hats of service for different situations and in a specific order. There is a part of us in forging and revealing our revelation with God needs to step out of ourself and place the focus on the word, will and wisdom of God and how God defines everything in every situation in our life. And then there is the part of us in forging and revealing our relationship with God, which needs to focus on ourselves, what we are lacking, and turn only to God for these needs. So yes, in the beginning of our service, there's two different, there's a Moses and there's an Aaron, and there's a correct order. However, as we grow in our relationship with God, we eventually enter into the core of our being, where everything becomes about our oneness with God. And each and every different experience in our service to God are but mere translucent expressions of our oneness with God. Thank you.